You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have uh, another fellow keeper on. We're going to talk about um, his journey into keeping dart frogs. He actually started out as a, uh, a reef tank enthusiast. And uh, I know a lot of people, when they, uh, I guess in the greater herp community or whatever, a lot of times people will say to dart frog people or frog people or amphibian people in general, oh, you guys are able to master these uh, these, these crazy husbandry techniques and you're, you're so you know far ahead of the curve. And then I always almost always say to those people, well, talk to a reef person because there's a, there's a lot more involved in that than there is keeping in any frog. So um, my guest is, is, is Kyle Martin. He's a fellow keeper. And uh, we're going to talk about his journey from keeping reef tanks into keeping dart frogs. And we're also going to talk about his uh, method for rearing tadpoles, which is pretty sophisticated, but uh, it's also very simple. So we're going to discuss that and a few other things that come up. But of course, before we get into all that, thanks everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Great way to support the show. Leave a nice five-star review. Uh, at this point, up in, we're close to about 60. So thank you. That That's um, that's pretty good. It helps us get the show out there. The five-star reviews get me the exposure that will bring the show to a wider audience, which of course is, uh, is what we want. And uh, for everything about the show, click on the link tree in the show description. That'll take you to the patron page if you want to become a Patreon, excuse me, become a patron on Patreon. I also have the link to the merch store. There's a lot of cool stuff on there, t-shirts, stickers, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. If you want to get some back-to-school stuff, you'll find all that on there. I also have a link to Institute Ecosystems. I am now a affiliate with them. And uh, as a listener, if you make your purchase through the link, you'll get a 10% discount off your next purchase. And, uh, of course, there's also a link there to Panamanian Frog Conservation. A while back, I had uh, Edgardo Griffith on the show. We talked about some of the... Uh, issues with Panamanian frogs. So if you want to support frog conservation, that's a great way to do so. So all that aside, everything out of the way, Kyle, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thanks for uh, taking some time to talk to me. Hey, Dan, it's great to be here. Uh, I, I appreciate the in- invite. I'm a huge fan of the show and uh, I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to have you. Uh, you've got some pretty unique experience and um, I want to talk about your methods keeping frogs, but I, I kind of want to back up a little bit and start with the reef tank experience. And I, I've kept some aquariums. I always had a, an interest in keeping aquatics. I, I actually worked at an aquarium about 20 years ago, which had a really crazy um, reef tank in it, but um, I don't really know much about it. So Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you start off with with reef tanks, and what was like, what was the startup for the for for the whole reef tank experience? Like, what what gave you the motivation to start keeping those? Well, like many guests on your show, I was the kid that always enjoyed going down, you know, in the woods after school and flipping over rocks and seeing what I could catch. Going in the stream, seeing what I could catch. I've always been an animal lover. And when I was uh, young enough, I actually had an uncle that got me a fish tank, and that got me into fish keeping. And it actually uh, it grew on me to the point where uh, I decided to kind of make that my life journey. So I went to uh, uh, college in, in, with a degree in biology uh, and a minor in chemistry. And why I was there. I actually started uh, doing some coral aquaculture on the side, um, and I ha- had been keeping, you know, aquariums all up until until college. Um, and but that's really what what kicked it off for me was uh, the more uh, commercial side of uh, industrial 
growth, of course, for the, 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 the I guess it's a hobby, but I was on it more of a, the professional side of it. And uh, that's really, you know, the, the kind of the direction that I've, I've taken my life. Like I said, I uh, decided, you know, that's going to be my career path was, I guess you could say, ornamental marine aquaculture. So I'm curious, uh, I mean, I remember back in school, the people who majored in biology and chemistry and whatnot, uh, the, the people who had a great greater foundation in, in chemistry, a lot of times that seemed to translate better well into a, a career. Did the chemistry knowledge help you out a lot in aquaculture in terms of, like, I know there's a lot of monitoring the different water parameters and what like uh, whatnot, stuff like that. How did the chemistry help you in terms of your, your career with aquaculture? Well, that is a great question because the chemistry is actually key. Whether it be reef keeping, aquarium keeping, or even with your dart frogs that allows a lot of crossover, is you're keeping these animals in a closed environment. And that drastically changes the, the ecosystem that they live on, where the, mostly that's going to be the nitrogen cycle. So uh, being able to have a fundamental understanding of what is taking place uh, really allows you to then take actions to, you know, affect or better facilitate those cycles. So chemistry is key, and that's actually one of the the things that allowed me to, I feel like, be very successful with dart frog keeping and specifically tadpole raising is a, a better fundamental understanding of those chemical processes that are taking place. Can you walk us through the nitrogen cycle? Because... I mean, obviously, dart frogs aren't really aquatic or whatnot, but a lot of my listeners also do keep frogs that are aquatic or semi-aquatic, and I know a lot of people keep aquariums. From a, from a chemist's perspective or someone with a lot of chemistry experience, can you walk us through the, ni- the, the, the nitrogen cycle, say from startup of a new aquarium and then in terms of maybe like what goes into like normal maintenance? Like what should people look for? Absolutely. So the nitrogen cycle is is basically dealing with the waste that comes out of of animals, whether this be uh, urea on on in fish or um, you know solid nitrogenous waste on, on land animals, and that's going to basically be in the form of ammonia. And then what you have is a series of chemical processes that detoxify that ammonia into less. Uh, harmful compounds um, by oxidizing it. And this happens in oxygen-rich environments. And basically you go from ammonia to nitrite, which is less toxic, and then to nitrate, which is is okay in lower uh, quantities. And then also you can, you can complete that nitrogen cycle uh, in areas of lower oxygen content. So this isn't no oxygen. This isn't anoxic that where you can get that sulfur smell, um, but uh, anaerobic. And you can actually get that nitrate, which is NO3, can then be reduced into nitrogen gas, N2, and leave the environment completely, whether that be a a terrarium or an aquarium. Um, So knowing how this process works, um, for example, the nitrifying bacteria need high oxygen, um, and uh, whereas the the denitrifying bacteria need you know low oxygen content, and basically understanding that and allowing you to cr- 
create these environments that help process this cycle that takes place. Uh, it, it just allows it to, to be more of a, a smooth process that you can make sure it takes place. And there's a lot of things that can hamper that. If, for example, if you don't have a good drainage in your substrate, uh, water doesn't transfer oxygen as well as air does. So if you have a really waterlogged substrate, you may not be getting good denitrification taking place in there. Um, so basically having the chemistry background, it allows you to kind of understand why something may not be the ideal situation and, and take the corrective action and understand why that fixes the problem. Is this something that is common to freshwater and marine? I mean, I keep saying reef tanks, but I should really use a correct term, marine. Do they both go through similar nitrogen cycles, or is it is it different, like freshwater to saltwater? Okay, so that yes, it's it's the same cycle that takes place. Um, there is some slight differences. Uh, saltwater doesn't hold as much oxygen uh, as as saltwater does, so you use use and use different pH and, and other chemicals that uh calcium alkalinity that take a lot of place in salt water but the thing with fresh water is it's easy as far as fixing a problem do a huge water change uh and you get you know you kind of start out fresh you could say whereas in salt water the the trick with what has developed the reef keeping hobby to an advanced state is these corals uh the coral reefs are used to a very stable environment so you don't want to basically get dirtier 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 and then just wipe it clean and dirtier 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 wipe it clean regardless of you know the price of salt and all that you're just trying to create a more stable environment so that has come to uh allow the development of a lot more specialized uh equipment and techniques to maintain these higher water qualities. I remember on one of your previous episodes dealing with uh, uh, SLS, they talked about uh, uh, phosphate reducing reactors and stuff like that, um, which are just a common everyday piece of equipment in the reef aquarium world um, that is been developed to allow for these tight control of, of parameters. And that's kind of why, uh, I guess you said like in the intro that in coming from the reef keeping hobby to the frog keeping hobby, it's, it's almost like going into retirement. It's, it's so much easier. Um, but it, it allows you to have a more, uh, critical analysis of what needs to take place for these animals to do their best under your care. Is it kind of more habitual to check water parameters and um, I guess like what I, I know like nothing about keeping reef tanks but I mean we, I guess retirement is a good analogy because I mean with dart frog tanks we really don't do too much once it's established but did that get you into a habit of being more um, hands-on in terms of monitoring water quality and everything like that like I mean basically what I'm asking is how often do you have to do that with a reef tank to make sure everything stays the way it's supposed to oh well actually it's uh it's Important enough that if you're up to the latest technology with reef keeping, it's, it's continuous. I know uh, uh, Bill at NC True Ecosystems uh, uses some of the Apex uh, by Neptune controllers for uh, that can control lights and plumbing and all that. But they also have uh, um, equipment such as the, the Trident, which is actually real-time monitoring. 
Uh, so you're not pulling out a test kit and, and measuring stuff, you know, once a week, once a day, whatever. It's testing, you know, four times a day and, and plugging it on a graph for you. So uh, it's, it's very important because it, it's, like I said, it's consistency um, with reef keeping. Uh, and it's, it's basically on the evolutionary needs of the animals. Freshwater fish are, are a whole lot different. A lot of them are in uh, ponds, streams, lakes, where a huge rain thunderstorm will greatly change the parameters that they're living in. Where saltwater, they haven't had to evolve those coping mechanisms because they just live in such pure stability. Nothing fast happens in the ocean. So that has um, made it a lot higher bar to be able to be set for keeping saltwater fish. Um, so it is continuous um, in the reef keeping. And as far as frogs, specifically in the tadpole care, um, once you kind of get a, a baseline of what you're doing, then it's, it's less often. I test, uh, you know, maybe once a week. Um, to make sure that the nitrates aren't too high or the, the phosphates or stuff like that. Do coral produce a lot of waste as opposed to fish? Uh, they actually don't. Um, but there's, uh, in, in any closed system, uh, anything you put in that tank, whether it be a pinch of fish food or anything, it is. It's in addition as far as nutrients and else you have a way to take it out. So corals aren't particularly dirty animals, um, but. Uh, How does the whole community dynamic work in a, uh, well, actually, for, let me, let me, but first, how, like, what is a, a reasonable size to have like a, a successful setup? Meaning I know a lot of people go for really small, like nano aquariums, and a lot of times they met with some difficulty because it can be a lot more difficult to monitor parameters in a tiny tank. What's a good size for like a, a reasonable size to have the system work without having to constantly obsess over it? Like twenty gallons, forty gallons, hundred gallons. Like what's what's a good size? That's actually a great question because you are right. Um, the marine reef keeping hobby is is quite an expensive hobby um it could it can be outrageously expensive if you if you choose for it to be but even at a minimum you're looking at you know several thousand dollars to set up a a, a 30 or 40 gallon tank which i would say is about the smallest you want to go you can go smaller and even get down into pico and nano aquariums of just a few gallons and those are actually extremely difficult because even just things such as evaporation on over a single day is going to require, you know, intervention on your part to keep things stable. So to, to answer your question, I would say about a 30 or 40 gallon. Um, but I, I will warn you in a reef tank to set it up properly, it's, it's going to be, you know, a couple thousand dollars, um, which is a lot compared to a vivarium, I would say you could set up, you know, maybe a 18, 18, 24 vivarium for a few hundred dollars. Um, so it's, it's not, uh, it's not impossible, but it's, it's certainly, uh, uh, you got to have some discretionary spending to get into the reef keeping hobby. What about the, the mass of fish? Like, um, I know I, I kind of started off, but I kind of, I kind of trailed off, uh, 
like a, like a, a community tank. A lot of people don't just keep one fish or one species of fish in a marine aquarium. How do you manage the dynamics of a, of a communal aquarium? So reef tanks offer a lot as far as what you can keep in them. Um, you can do a community tank of, of different peaceful fish, um, but there's also a lot of more specialized uh, ecosystems or little habitats or symbiotic relationships that you can see set up in a reef tank. Everybody knows about the clownfish and anemones, but there's a lot of other stuff. Use different pistol shrimp and their gobies that have very cool commensal relationships. Also, you could set up, uh, you know, a predator tank. You got your lionfish, your triggerfish, puffers, stuff like that. So it all kind of depends on what you're looking for. Um, but you're generally going to be able to keep less saltwater fish uh, in the same size tank compared to freshwater fish. Just because of uh, actually a variety of reasons, not beyond just the physical uh, uh, size of the fish and the nitrogenous waste load that they have, but also saltwater fish living in such a big environment uh, of of the ocean, they uh they can be quite temperamental. Um, you can have you know stuff like damselfish that if you're out there scuba diving, they'll come up and attack you. Um, so saltwater fish are, are kind of a different ball game as far as a community tank going, but, uh, you certainly use, use a huge variety that you can keep in a, in a saltwater tank. Yeah. I know, um, when we're going to talk about it once we get into dart frogs, but, um, I know you've done some communal dart frog, uh, tanks with, with adults and, um, I want to get into that. Actually, you know, let's, let's, let's start with dart frog. How did you make the transition from keeping marine reef aquariums to keeping dar frogs how did that process start and how did you end up where you are today with your frogs okay well that's a great question so i'm a lifelong aquarist um but i'm actually relatively new to uh to the dart frog hobby i've only been keeping frogs for a little bit over four years and how it started out was uh just purely as as a, a hobby i at the time i was running a, a seahorse hatchery up in maryland and um it was full-time job i uh, uh you know raise seahorses and ship them all over the country and uh, i got a pair of robertus dendro Beatty's tinctoris robertus as a uh, just kind of like another little thing to take care of um and it quickly kind of snowballed from there they're kind of like pokemon you want more and more and more um and the ease of which i found keeping dart frogs coming from the reef aquarium world kind of made me nose dive into there i uh sold the seahorse business my stake in it and uh and moved down to north carolina and that is where i kind of really got going strong with the dart frogs we have a really great community down here um, there's Alex Mink at uh, Frog Daddy. He, he's down here in North Carolina, as, as well as a, quite a bit of other prominent froggers. Um, so it, it kind of shifted me more into dart frogs uh, moving down here. But I actually moved to North Carolina after selling the seahorse hatchery to build a, a core aquaculture farm on a commercial scale. Um, that's, I guess you could say my, my day job, my career. I am, am aquarist by trade, uh, but dark frog hobby, hobbyist by, uh, by passion, I guess you could say. So what skill set would you take, would you say that you took from reef 
gatekeeping because I'll, I, mean, I came into this from a reptile perspective and I've had people who got into it from birds. I've got people who came into it from the aquarium hobby. Like what was the, like, what was the moment where you said, all right, I want to take the skills that I have in reef keeping and transfer them. Like what was, what were some of the skills that you had that made the transition like easy or, or helpful? I would say, uh, by taking the viewpoint of you're keeping these animals in a closed glass box for your enjoyment. That is, that is why we have them. Now, of course we, we care about the animals. We got to think about, you know, what's best for the frogs and, and we do our earnest to, to provide a great environment for them. But the whole reason you're keeping them is for your enjoyment. And I guess, uh, just understanding that you're trying to create this, this, closed habitat and and basically a glass box uh, and the going at it from that angle i think is what helped me out a lot i think that, that's a really good analogy i mean that's when people ask me about it i always i kind of defer them to the aquarium community too because you're you're absolutely right it's really just um it's it's a it's a closed system i mean especially with um like i mean my my horrible example and I'm sure I'm going to embarrass myself because I've seen pictures of your, the reef tank that you showed me. It's incredible, but I have, uh, my, my, I have my Oscar tank and, um, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of it for, for what it is, but, um, it's, it's gotten to the point where the tank's been up and running for about seven years now, maybe seven, eight years. And I, I be honest, I do absolutely nothing with it. I, I trim the plants. I'll top the water off. I do absolutely nothing. And it is just run like clockwork. But it took such a long time to get it to that point where it could run without any kind of intervention. Like when I first started, it was it was chaos. I mean, I had a huge diatom <laughs> bloom, and then I had cyanobacteria, and then I had some other plants died, and then the, the driftwood released a whole bunch of tannin. It was it was a, it was a nightmare. I'm like, this is going to look terrible forever. And then finally, it worked. But um, like that fish tank, I mean, I was I built these the same as I built some of the some of the, my first vivariums in my the current house, but I, I realized after a while that I'm like, it really is just like a dart frog tank, only that you're just not really adding anything. You're maybe adding some fresh leaf litter or trimming some plants, but for all intents and purposes, it just, you pull the string and it just goes on its own. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's, you know, the, the cycling and the, the reaching the, the equilibrium, the, the homeostasis of that closed environment. Once you reach that point, it's, it does become a lot easier um, and just people have to understand that no matter how well you set up that tank right at the beginning, it's not going to be a perfect closed ecosystem. You're going to have to let these these processes take place. Um, for example, we we're talking about the the nitrogen cycle earlier. You got to you know let those nitrifying bacteria reach reach population levels where they can sustain the waste load of the tank and. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's all about reaching that sweet spot, and uh, it, it does become a lot easier once you get to that point. I hear people often talk about vivariums cycling for a certain period, and what are your thoughts on that? Because I know some people say, let the tank go for a few weeks, a few months, sometimes even a year before you introduce frogs. What, what are you, What's your opinion on letting a vivarium cycle before you introduce its primary inhabitant? Why I don't think it's absolutely necessary. It's certainly a better idea. 
to to let things cycle. And you can you can visibly observe this happening in new vivariums. Of a lot of times, you see, uh, for example, a a mold uh, growth you know pop up shortly after a vivarium is put together, um, and then slowly disappear over time. And that's all basically letting the the aquarium reach its cycle, whether it be on the the uh, microscopic level like that or the larger level for example letting you know let those plants that you put in there become established let their you know their um the root systems be established the the, uh, the the light that they receive and um the coating on the leaves changes based on the, the amount of humidity and all that and basically taking things slow allows uh the process to uh to be a lot more smoother. Nothing good happens fast. So whereas uh, in an aquarium, if you don't let things cycle, you, you're going to have some dead animals because of the acute ammonia toxicity. Um, and that isn't as viewable in, in a land-based terrarium. It still certainly makes it a smoother process. So I, I think it's good to, you know, give it some time. doesn't have to be a year, but at least give it a couple weeks, a month, something like that. Do you incorporate any kind of false bottom or anything where you would have water, like uh, are your tanks drilled or anything like that? Like, do you have water that exits your vivariums? That's a that's a great question. So yeah, I have uh, all my uh, vivariums are drilled um, with drain lines, and the line actually goes straight out the side of the house. So uh, it's no worrying as far as that because you want to be able to uh, mist and maintain that humidity. Um, and, and not have to adjust that because, oh, you know, my drainage layer is filling up too quickly. Um, so I, I absolutely drill uh, all my tanks. To, it's, it's a little bit intimidating. I know a lot of people are, uh, are intimidated by it, but it's, it's, it's not, not too difficult. Um, you know, watch some YouTube videos and, and try it on a practice piece of glass first. But, yeah, all my, uh, all my tanks are, are drilled with a false bottom. I like the aid crate method uh basically because it's it's the lightest weight um and it gives you the largest void area um and it won't wick anything up um water you know has great cohesion and adhesion and just because you have a drainage layer doesn't mean you still have some wicking going back up into the soil especially if you have some roots that break through um and even down to uh my froglet grow out i use the 190 ounce uh, deli containers, and I even use uh, uh, some clay uh, pellets in the bottom of those that act as a, a drainage layer. Just because you want, you don't want that that water uh, nutrient rich water sitting there in the substrate. Um, I, like I said earlier in the the interview, that's not going to allow the proper oxygen gradients to take place for uh, for everything to go smoothly as far as nitrogen goes. Um, so displays are, are drilled. The froglet containers aren't, but uh, they still do have a draining flare. Do you ever water test the wastewater? I have, and it's off the range of uh, <laughs> of uh, the test kits that I have. Um, really? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, as far as uh, uh, not ammonia, but uh, the, the nitrates are ex- extremely high. Um, greater than a hundred parts per million. What do you What do you attribute that to? Any Any theories? Uh, a lot of 
biological activities taking place, um, not necessarily only with the frogs, but also the plants. Um, you know, the I have a lot of fast-growing plants that, that, you know, for example, begonia filosa drops a lot of leaves, or begonia amphioxus, a lot of those are just real productive plants, grow fast, die fast. And uh, so there's just a lot, a lot going on um, that, uh, that uh, takes place and uh, it provides those, those nutrients. Yeah, I'm honestly surprised. I figured that the plants would be pulling a lot of the nitrogen out of anything in the substrate or the soil or whatever for their own uh, benefit. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, and I'm sure they do. Um, but once it gets down to that drainage layer, they don't, they don't have access to it anymore. So it's kind of just, just sitting there. Um, I, I have my, uh, I have one pallet area that I have my, uh, my mossy frogs in and I, I don't even have substrate. I just have some river gravel and, um, I know it's a dirty word, but I have pothos in there and the, <laughs> the pothos in there is like, it's beastly. I, I always attributed that to the extra nitrogen from the frog waste because they kind of like it a little bit dirty, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. is, is there, is, is, am I on the right track? Could that be because of the excess of nitrogen that's, that's boosting the plant growth? Absolutely. That's, that's what the, the, the pothos is most likely enjoying in there is, is that, uh, that available nitrogen that it has to it in, in, uh, the water, both in, in, uh, in all forms of nitrogen. That's interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I always, I'm, I'm surprised that it's, it's off the charts to the extent that it is. So I, I mean, I, I mean, it's wastewater obviously, so it's designed to be gotten rid of, but I didn't, I never would have thought it would have been that, 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 that crazy out of control. That's, 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 that's amazing. Yeah, uh, for sure. And that's why, uh, it kind of, you know, it furthers the fact of why you want to get it, get it out of the system. Um, that's, that's the one way that, uh, you can get nutrients out of the system, whether it, you know, besides trimming the plants and taking biomass out, um, there's really no other exit of nutrients. You know, you're, you're constantly putting in all these vitamins, minerals, fruit flies, fresh leaf litter, all that stuff. And, and it does get broken down to a sense to simpler compounds, but it's, there's not of many ways that it's leaving that system. Um, and that's why, uh, misting and recreating rainfall and flushing out the system, flushing off all those plant leaves, all the waste on those and just getting it out of the system. Um, you got to, got to realize that these are closed boxes, like we talked about earlier. And, and, uh, you got to, can't let that box fill up with crap, I guess you could say. Yeah. And that's another reason I've heard people recommend letting a vivarium cycle is to just give, uh, I guess, create more, uh, you know, I guess, you know, fodder for microorganisms and for, for plants and whatnot, because I mean, you know, as well as I do, dark frogs, they make a fair amount of waste. And it, to me, it seems like the, the vivariums that are really going like really, really, you know, a long time and they're, they're really well established. I seem to get the most vigorous plant growth in those as opposed to anything that's new. You know, I mean, it takes, for me, the average seems to be about two years for a tank to really start like taking off with, with plant growth with like, with like minimal loss. But that's just my, my theory. No, cause you're absolutely right. Dan. you're so much more beyond what you first 
kind of visualize with your eyes. You got to think down in those substrates, you got all the mycorrhizae, uh, you know, communities going on with the roots of the plants and establishing all, all these different things. Actually, what's the cool thing about, you know, whether it be reef aquariums or, or vivariums is it's a whole ecosystem in that glass box and, uh, you know, kind of helping it along the way to reach the best that it could be is, is kind of the trick of it. Um, and it's, it's a lot more than you think that, that goes on in there. Um, and, and like I said, nothing good happens fast. Um, but with age, uh, and it goes both ways, actually, there is, uh, there was a point where a lot of, uh, you know, public aquariums and, and stuff like that, uh, after, you know, I know Joe at Long Island Aquarium, uh, one of my buddies, he recently tore down his 20,000 gallon reef tank and completely reset it up um from start just because you know after a long time you know kind of things need to start you got to start them all over it's 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 a fine balance between you know reaching a sweet spot and then just becoming kind of an aged system um but with with time and practice i i think uh we get better with it as time goes on which frogs are you currently keeping uh because i've seen i mean you showed me pictures of your your setups and you've got quite a few vivariums what, what are you keeping now which species so i'm a huge fan of tinctorious um because they are bold they're colorful they're large so i uh, i currently have about uh 36 different locales um and i think about 20 of those are different tinks maybe a little bit less I also have a lot of uh, Rananomaya, um, many different imitator species. I also have Sirensis, Benedicta. I have a few different uh, Fantastica, as well as Epidobates anthony and Phylobates terribilis. I have both the mint and the blackfoot. Um, so I have about about 36 different locales and, and all dart frogs. Um, I do have some Adelopus from Nick and some glass frogs from Troy um, and Nick, actually. Um, but uh, they're mostly, mostly tinks. That's my hobby. That, that, that's my hobby favorite is, is the tinks. I, my first frogs were Robertus um, and then uh, the whole gamut, Powder Blue, Patricia, Citronella, Giant Orange, Green Sip, Bacchus, um what else is there there's the oapak the tumuks um vanessas the vanessas are beautiful stark black and white dart frogs um lawa uh brazilian yellowhead oh i i'm deep in the i'm deep in the addiction dan i tell you i'm deep in it yeah tinks are tinks are pretty remarkable i've I'm trying to think i've only got i've got the patricias i've got the single oapak which i've had forever and he's he's a little squirt. He's tiny, and um, the the Azurius. That's really yep, yeah. That's yep, really. Well. I've, yep. I've become more of like a Phylobates fan. I just I don't know why. It's just something about them. I just I just everyone's got I guess their own genus that they like. I know some people really like Ophaga. Some people like I just I became a big Phylobates nut. But um, yeah, yours bred for you successfully. And the the interesting thing about uh, Tinctorius is. The kind of the the norm or the way it's been for some time is to raise the offspring separately. A lot of people like to do the whole deli cup thing where they'll have one tadpole per deli cup. 
you have a of a you have a very very different way of effectively raising tadpoles. And when you showed me the the pictures, um, you had this a whole big elaborate setup of how to raise tinctorious. And I know the move lately has been more and more to go with communal. And um, well, you know what you you. You tell the listeners about it yourself. Um, you, you've got this method for raising tinctorious tadpoles. I mean, I'm assuming your other tadpoles as well, but why don't you walk us through what your method is and, and how you came to it and what the results have been. I'd love to, Dan. Okay, so like you said, a lot of people weigh, raise their uh, dart frogs in, in deli cups. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is because some tadpoles, such as, as Vranita Maya and uh, uh, Leucomelas and even Tinctorius, uh, not not so as much as the, the former, but can be cannibalistic. Um, so you you want to isolate the tadpoles, but also you want to provide them with with good water quality, um, and that's to prevent a lot of problems. Uh, commonly, you know, uh, ammonia poisoning or anything that like that. But also, you want to make sure that your uh, you know your calcium to phosphorus ratios and all that other things that we're learning more and more about um, is provided. Well, if you have a lot of these these tadpoles, um, especially you have dozens of, of locales like me, um, and that's going to give you hundreds of tadpoles. And if you're keeping these all individually, it it's not really feasible. Um, so then you go to communal raisin, which I, I did for a while. And that has the benefit of uh, not only making it easier to feed, um, but mostly maintain higher water quality because you're not going to provide as big of a, uh, a a disturbance every time you feed. Um, but there's the problem of, 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 you know, the dart frogs picking on each other. So you, you can keep them sorted by size, you know, maybe no more than uh, – uh, you know, two or three weeks difference in, in when they hatch. Um, but that still is an ideal. So what I, I, I uh, kind of use my aquaculture background and, and uh, of, of how things are done commercially. And I wanted to design something where I could isolate the tadpoles so they can't harm each other. And also they don't have to compete with each other for food, but provide them a common water source. And that will allow you to provide a great deal of effort into maintaining the highest water quality. You know, basically your biological, mechanical, chemical filtration, um, even ultraviolet sterilization. Um, so what I designed with was kind of a, a bunch of little cubicles that have a mesh bottom um, that sit in a larger reservoir that is is – of, of communal water that is filtered as, as well as you want. And, uh, it's kind of hard to describe, uh, but I, uh, I, you can check out my Instagram or, or Facebook, uh, um, which we can provide links to. And, uh, it, it works great so much so that I've had other people like Alex at frog daddy reach out to me and, and ask me to help, uh, them b build them systems for them. Cause it, it basically allows, uh, all the pros of uh, keeping the tadpoles in a common body of water, but allowing them to also not have any competition with each other. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really unique system that uh, I've developed over the years, and I've made a couple of of it. 
that uh, allows basically the process to be easier. Because, Dan, I tell you, with all these frogs, I have about 30 locales and at least 25 of them are regularly breeding. So I, uh, I mean, I, I probably have close to a thousand tadpoles at any given time. The closest way I could think of to describe it was, I don't know if people still use the term, but it was called the tackle box method, where if you went to, if you had like, I mean, anybody out there, I, I know some of you fish, but for if anyone who doesn't fish and doesn't quite get the analogy, imagine like an arts and crafts box that's got little compartments in it, or like um, almost like an ice cube tray. It's got, everything's got its own little compartment, but Instead of it just being one static container, you have a water source that, that goes through there and changes all of them at the same time, right? Correct. Yeah, you use a, use a, a spray bar that uh, uh, kind of directs a, a flow of water directly underneath of this perforated bottom. of The perfect tackle box is a perfect example. And what that does is it creates a, a venturi effect, um, which is... Uh, is a way that you can uh, kind of draw water out of those cubicles and allow better mixing. Um, so it's 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 a little bit of physics and, and uh, aerodynamics, I guess, or hydrodynamics that go into the design there. But yeah, it's it's the tackle box method uh, on steroids, I guess, is is what you could could describe it as. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. Can you walk us through the filtration? Because I'm I'm. I'm just I'm trying to get so everyone can kind of picture it, but um, you've got like a like a tray that has the little partitions in it, and you've got the water. H- how do you have it piped in, and what kind of filter do you have? And like, does it does it go to like three stage filtration, or like how does it how's the, the filter setup go for it? Okay, so, sure. So you got these little cubicles that are are two inches deep in them, and and a perforated open bottom of each these cubicles, um, and those two-inch deep cubicles sit in a six-inch deep tray of water. So you got a nice void underneath of, of it of open water. Um, and then that has a spray bar that the water enters, and then it has a drain on the other end that it drains down. And now this system is five or, or six levels tall, and they all drain down a common drain pipe that then – goes through a 50 micron filter sock, which is your mechanical filtration. And then also down there, we have a, uh, a trickle filter, which uses a ceramic media um, held above the water line um, that does your nitrification, turning ammonia to nitrite and then to nitrate. And, and out of the water, because air has a lot more oxygen available than the water and this nitrifying bacteria wants as much uh, oxygen as possible. And then below that, you have a solid ceramic uh, eight inch cube uh, brick sort of, of, and this is the location where your denitrification takes place. And by creating a low oxygen gradient here, by one being completely submerged and also a big solid block, as you get towards the center of that, the oxygen gets lower. You can actually get denitrification. So that is your biological filtration. So we got the mechanical and biological filtration. And then also I have a, a media reactor on there that you could uh, fill with uh, 
uh, activated carbon. You could fill with a, a granular ferric oxide to uh, absorb um, phosphates. Um, there's many other different chemicals, you, filtration methods you can use. And then also I have an ultraviolet sterilizer on there just to uh, maintain higher water quality. The UV helps in breaking down um, larger organic organic compounds, um, not just getting rid of algae cells or bacteria cells, but it helps the whole process in, in breaking that down. Um, and then I have a, uh, a, a nice CHA pump that, uh, that delivers the water all back up into those and comes out the spray bars on each level. So it has a, a filtration sump in the bottom of it that, uh, that kind of cleans the water and then sends it all back through. The whole system is about a about a hundred and fifty gallons. Um, so it's, it's all in all, it's quite a large body of water, and that allows you to put all your effort into just maintaining. For you know, example, we're talking about water testing. You're not going to go through and test, you know, the nitrates in hundreds of cups of water of the tadpole and be like, oh, we should change the water on this one. It's just not going to happen. But by able to keep in them communally, it uh, it makes it a lot easier for you to maintain the ideal environment for these these tadpoles, and it it shows results in that. Uh, I mean, these tadpoles are big, beefy, fat, flawless, no nips on them or anything like that from other tadpoles. And uh, I mean, just the size and the rate of which these tadpoles grow is is far beyond what I got even when I was doing communal raising, which for the large majority of people, I, I would say communal is the best uh, that you can do for most dendrobate species. Um, you can't, obviously, with Ophega or Random Maya, but um, these, these tadpole condominium systems uh, kind of take it to the next level. And that's why I feel like my aquarium background has allowed me to kind of see it from a different angle and uh and go into it well above what may work you know as a baseline i i want to i want to do better than that what do you look for in terms of water parameters for your tadpole rearing like do you have a, a, a ph that you look for or um a nitrate levels i mean again i'm, I'm not well versed in um in water parameters but for the listeners who are or anyone who's curious but what like, what parameters do you look for Oh uh, well, I I want absolutely no ammonia, absolutely no nitrate. I try to keep my nitrates below ten, um, ten parts per million. Uh, the the pH in the seven point seven point oh seven point two range, maybe a little bit lower if you're using Indian almond leaves. I actually don't use any uh, almond leaves or any tannins or anything like that with uh, with my tadpoles. Um, and then, uh, I like the general hardness to be about five. Um, I do adjust that. I use reverse osmosis water, but I reconstitute it after it comes out with Seachem Replenish, which is a product that has different, uh, calcium chlorides, magnesium chlorides, different, different salts, um, that allows you to, you know, after the RO strips out most everything out of the water, it allows you to put those important ones back back into the water. 
Um, so when I first was designing this system and kind of perfecting it, I, I did regular water testing. Um, now I, I do it every, every couple of weeks just to make sure uh, things aren't climbing, uh, specifically phosphates and nitrates. That's the ones that you got to um, keep your eye on. And then also the, the hardness. If you're going to do any large uh, water changes or anything like that, you're going to shock the tadpoles if you don't use the same uh, same quality water that you put back in. In episode 90, and I think we talked about this a little bit off air, I had Kathleen Higgins on. We talked about the um, SLS in some of uh, the frogs that she was working with in situ in Panama. And I think um, part of the problem was, I think it was, a fo- was it a phosphate reactor? I think it was. That's something you guys use in, in reef tank, uh, reef keeping, right? Absolutely. So she, uh, I believe she found uh, Julian Sprung, who is, is a, a nice, uh, a long-time reef keeper. He's, uh, he's one of the OGs. Uh, his company, Two Little Fishes, makes a nice little uh, uh, reactor that you can use any chemical media in, but uh, using granular ferric oxide, which is basically rust, um, can quickly uh, strip water of phosphates. Um, And you actually want to do it slowly. If if you do start using it, you actually can uh, just stripping them all out right away. It will cause shock to fish, tadpoles, anything. So you kind of adjust the flow through it to kind of gradually introduce it. Um, And basically, I try to keep the the phosphates levels detectable, but very low. Um, And then... uh, I use the, the CCAM equilibrium to bring the calcium up. Um, it, at least, I would say at least 200 parts per million is what I try to get, get it at. And that's what the, uh, I measure with a salifert um, test kit. What was the learning curve like with this method? I mean, did, did you start off with this or did you start out off with a little bit more of a uh, simpler, more conventional method before you kind of graduated to this method? It's continuous. I always am trying to be better, strive to be better. A lot of the things I do, um, you know, may not be necessary, uh, you know, as the bare minimum to, you know, sure, raise tadpoles and cups. There's nothing wrong with it. But I feel like when, uh, when we are, you know, keeping these things under all complete control, we're kind of like, almost like they're God, where they're all dependent, all being over them. I, I feel kind of, you know, just in my thinking, you know, you, you got to continuously do the best you can. So it's, I'm always improving my methods. Um, and it may be not necessary, but I'm not going to stop trying to be better for these animals. So it's continuous. Um, the, the phosphate reactors and the UV sterilizers were something that I just recently, uh, introduced, uh, um, try to just create a more ideal environment for these animals. What do you do when they're ready to come out of the water? Like when they start to absorb that tail, how do you transition them out of this setup into something where they would emerge? So that's, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't have a, uh, a really high tech method of that yet. I still use the, the tilted fly cup method. Um, and I've had, you know, when I've, I've showed people my uh, tadpole condominium systems, they've, they've asked, well, you know, what special thing do you have for them to climb out of the water? Well, I, I don't yet, you know. 
Um, in fact, I just on Instagram posted today uh, a Brazilian yellowhead froglet that decided it was his his time to come out of the cubicles, and he just climbed right up. Um, so I just used a tilted cup. I uh, I put them in there, and I uh, put them in a, a cup with a little bit of java moss to you know cling on to, and uh, you know maybe a, a quarter cup of water. And I use you know clean, uh, fresh reverse osmosis reconstituted water in there. You don't want to put a uh, put dirty water in there. Um, and let them uh, finish developing. Now, I, I don't put them in there the, the day I see their front legs pop out because I actually have observed the tadpoles continuing to eat after they have front legs for even just a day or two, um, which when I was first entering the hobby, I thought once their front legs come out, that's done. They don't eat anymore. I mean, and, and that's not the case. It's, it's very shortly thereafter. So, uh, I give them a day or two to swim around their little cubicle with their front legs, and then I, I use a little plastic spoon to kind of lift them out of there and, and put them into a cup. And then I actually uh, I have a, a wine rack, <laughs> um, believe it or not, that uh, that works really well at holding those cups at a nice tilted angle. Um, and, and I can you know hold like what like ninety cups at a time. Um, so. It's, uh, I tell people it's a custom-made tadpole cup holder, but really it's just a wine rack. That is genius. I That was my favorite <laughs> picture. I saw that, and I started thinking to myself, you know what? That That is the most innovative use of a wine rack. <laughs> I, I, that, was, that was so perfect. You know what I use yeah. is, I mean, my, my method is not nearly as sophisticated as yours, but with the San Isabels, I was raising them in like a big Rubbermaid tub community, um, communally. And my issue with them with the cannibalism stopped when I added more protein to the diet. But when they were ready to emerge, what I did was I took a very, very thin piece of almost like styrofoam and it floated on the surface. It was maybe about a quarter of an inch to an eighth of an inch thick. And it floated on the surface of the water and they would just kind of crawl out on that. And then once they were, you know, once they were ready, everything was full absorbed. I would just catch them in a little dram vial. But it seemed like like to me, it was kind of more of a pain to have like cups and stuff tilted and gradients. I it's like a little raft. I just stuck this little raft in there, and they they hopped on it and took off. But I mean, I, that would never work with your setup. But no, I love I the idea. I love the idea. When I I did have uh, was doing communal raising, I did have pieces of cork that I would float in there for them to kind of climb up onto. But um, uh, th- there's got to be a better way out. That I haven't come out up with it yet. But uh, um. Like I said, these these tadpole condominiums aren't perfect in that because you know the tadpoles can climb out. But I do have it so the if you think each level of this condominium is is kind of like a tank. Um, and while there's the opening in the front, I do have the sides and the back uh, go all the way up to the the next shelf, so they can't you know kind of escape out the sides of the back. Um, so. Uh, I do have some designs in it to make it a better process, but uh, it's continuously involve it, evolving, and uh, I'm sure I'll have a, a better idea or come across somebody else's idea that uh, that transition phase still is a, a tricky little moment. I mean, from a business perspective, it's also a lot more effective because you've got this one system that you're you're not changing. I mean, I know people who change the cups, uh, change the water in the cups, like, you know, not daily, but regularly enough that it's kind of a chore. I mean, it's very, very streamlined. How, how, that you... that is the whole point of it, Dan. The yeah. whole point of it is uh, is it probably took about 
80% of my t- the time I was spending caring for tadpoles. It took 80% off. Even down to the fact that I just, when I feed these tadpoles, I kind of can just kind of like broadcast feed with pellets or flakes. I mean, all these cubicles fit right up against each other. So, I mean, there's no care as far as water, uh, changing the water cups um, and maintaining high water quality, which is extremely, extremely important um, uh, as far as even more so than providing them with an abundance of food. I've, I've looked at different scientific articles and, and stuff comparing the, the different feeding amounts, the size of tadpoles when they morph out. And if you don't, if you allow that feeding to become a detriment to the water quality, you're doing more harm than you're doing good. Um, so yes, the whole process, the, the whole point of these uh, tadpole condominiums is to make the tadpole process easier, um, by, uh, maintaining high water quality and also, you know, just making everything like feeding easier, you know, observing the tadpoles easier. I mean, that's why I've had other businesses, um, reach out to me like Alex, you know, uh, working with acrylic isn't, isn't cheap. These, uh, these systems, you know, just the acrylic itself, you're looking four figures, um, just for the acrylic. Um, so it's, it's not cheap, but it's, it's worth it. Uh, if, if, you're dealing with large volumes of tadpoles. Uh, Explore it based on uh, the time you save. What are you feeding them? Like, what's your diet preference? So I uh, I make sure that there's always algae growing in these systems, um, and uh, I provide you know uh, light to make sure that they have a good algae growth. And I know they eat it because uh, you know I, I can uh, I cannot feed these tadpoles forever a week and they're fine they it's no difference at all and you just see green poop you know they're eating tons of algae but you also want to provide them with a lot of of protein and um and different uh uh, vitamins and 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 fats you want to find uh, a food that's low in ash content um so i feed a variety i feed you know high cari uh microalgae discs i feed high cari um, blood worms, um, a little bit of spirulina. Um, I feed a, a variety of stuff, um, flakes, pellets, extrusions. Um, my buddy Nick Stace, he has sent me some of the powder he has that he feeds, um, his Adelopus. I put, I put that in there. Um, a whole bunch of variety. Like I said, you want something high in protein, um, high in, in, uh, in vitamins and, and low in ash content. And you want to make sure that the tadpoles consume it. Um, if you see food in there the next day, you're doing more harm than good. Take it out. Take that excess food out and feed them less next time. Do you use this method for other species like that are not in the Dendrobates genus? Are you used for Phyllobates as well? Yeah. So um, my largest aquarium, uh, vivarium that I have is actually a, a, a communal tank of uh, – Phyllobates and uh, Epibates, uh, Anthony, Santa Isabel. Um, and those are great at raising communally because unlike Dendrobates tinctorius, they don't mess with each other. You can have a good inch and a half, six-week-old tadpole, and you put in freshly hatched day-old tadpoles in there, and the big ones won't eat the little ones. Um, so uh, – they they are a lot easier to raise, but they they yeah the same diet. Um, but I, I found that 
the competition factor is enough that I actually have started raising them in cubicles as well. Um, just because I noticed they reach a larger size when they don't have to deal with any competition. Um, so yeah, same food, but uh, they also get, even though they can't easily be raised communally, um, I uh, I raise them in the in the condominiums too, um, along with the the Ranitamaya, um, which which need it. Um, I do have uh, one uh, large obligate. I have some redheads, and of course those you, you let the parents take care of completely. Um, but other than that, yeah, a, a very varied diet is is what all the tadpoles get. The competition thing. I think, you know, I try, I try to approach dart frogs not from the, the sense that every species is, is is so similar to itself. I try to think about it through different lenses. And I think a lot of the issues with competition has to do with the, obviously, the, the survival, being able to survive through the tadpole phase into adulthood. And when you think about it, it varies, like, pretty significantly among species. Like, um, like Dendrobates, obviously, their best strategy is to consume any of the you know any competition within that body of water whereas like with phyllobates isn't that bad but then you think about like ufaga and ufagas in a way they're almost more like birds because um like several of the guests that i've had on that that deal with ufaga the female actually seems to prefer a certain offspring over another and she'll actually put more eggs in certain bromeliads and favor certain offspring over other clutches for some weird reason it's just oh absolutely i don't think it's weird it's they those frogs are seeing something that you can't you and me can't see and they they'll put in their their money where it counts and uh and i'm sorry to interrupt there but uh it's uh it's you know that's how you learn is what are those frogs seeing that we aren't you know and and uh and that's that's the interesting part and and it could be a lot more specialized care like you said some some uh you know Frogs aren't as as competitive as others. You know, Rana Tamaya are probably some of the most competitive ones. Um, but and and like I said, I, I didn't think I would need to have to, you know, go away from communal with some of these, uh, like the Epidobates and Phyllobates. But then after just trying it and seeing the difference, you know, the results kind of speak for themselves, Dan. Yeah, it's just, it's it's always interesting to me how. We, we we all lump them all together. They, they're all similar. They're all dendrobatids. But when you think about some of the reproductive strategies, some of them are so remarkably different. And you, you, you manage to solve a difficult problem is how do you raise dendrobates, tinctorious, tadpoles communally and completely avoid cannibalism? And you, you did it in a very, very effective way. That's also, like I said before, from a business perspective, it's like it's perfect. It's like farming almost. It, it, it is. And it's, uh, it's, I recently, um, I posted a video of this, this system, um, and, uh, online and one, one person commented, you know, it, it kind of like, you're just, you're farming the frogs. And I, I kind of took a, a offense to that as, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to push all these frogs to produce as many tadpoles as they can. Um, you know, I do uh, enforce a, a dry season during the winter on my frogs where I reduce humidity and feeding to give them a break and, and rebuild their body condition. But once they do, you know, they do produce those eggs. And I want as many of those eggs to reach healthy adult, well, not adult, healthy froglets, you know, go through metamorphosis a, as possible. Once they're there, 
yeah, I am going to, you know, treat it as, as a, I guess you, you could call it a farm, but I want them to get the most out of them, uh, of what you get when the, the frogs produce uh, a clutches. So, um, like, I, like I said, I just try to bring that technical um, commercial aquaculture knowledge to solve the problems uh, of, of a different, different area. Yeah, I, I apologize. I didn't mean farm to come off as like, um, you know, I, I can understand what you mean. People might, people are weird the way they perceive things and not everybody can understand <laughs> things in, in context. But I mean, I've seen at aquarium stores, they'll have coral just kind of like sitting on little bits of egg crate next to each other. And I'm, I'm like, the coral doesn't care whether, you know, whether it's yeah. sitting on egg crate or whether it's in this elaborate yeah. reef tank the coral doesn't care as needs are being met you know you're, you're, you're overthinking it but um no, you're, ex you're exactly right that, yeah. that's, that's my day job is growing coral, and it's it's don't it's i guess a lot of people uh it's kind of like a what is it, anthropomorphizing things um you know look you, you can't look at these try to understand these organisms from their natural history and their needs what not what you kind of put on to them um and it, i think uh you didn't offend me with whatever you said i think it was the somebody actually used not farming they, they said it's, it's a frog mill and i'm just like rolling my eyes in the back of my head i'm like okay buddy and i and i didn't have to say anything a lot of other people were you know jumped in um uh to say you know like it, it's this is a lot better than raising you know tadpoles and sewage water basically um but uh it's uh, you know, I when you put so much effort and care and thought into trying to do the best you can for these animals, um, and you're always gonna have haters. Haters can hate, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't let just, it get to me. just just to address that right now, we've lost our ability to see things in context as a society, and I think that that's one of those things where. I mean, even the word farming has gotten a bad name and you have to ask yourself, like, where do you think, where do you think our food is coming from? You know what I mean? <laughs> and and mm -hmm. the thing about frogs is by and large, many species of frogs are explosive breeders. I mean, like, like Ceratophorus, the Pac-Man frogs, the reason that nobody breeds them at home is because they make thousands and thousands of offspring. And it's mm -hmm. a huge pain having to deal with all those, but... I could understand I could understand someone making that mistake and being, you know, biased against this type of setup, but these things make thousands and thousands of eggs during their life cycle anyway. I mean, obviously with dwarf frogs it's not all at once, but I mean dwarf frogs can live into their twenties and thirties producing eggs fairly consistently without any at least to my knowledge, and I'm sure someone could disagree with me and that's fine, but without any real damage to their well being. I mean, there are people that still have F ones from the early 2000s or the 90s that are that are still producing offspring. So I, I don't, I, I mean, I, like for me, I, I don't see, you know, whatever you want to call it, like producing frogs effectively is a bad thing. I mean, you're, you have a streamlined approach to producing them the same way you would anything else, you know, plus it's not like, you know, frogs are, are mammals where they're having like a single offspring a year and it takes them five you know you're not you're not milling anything you're just letting them do what they do naturally and it's a little more streamlined way efficiency yep. yes exactly you're exactly right efficiency I, I don't feel like people should be punished for efficiency i mean especially when you have i mean i can only god only knows how much this whole setup costs so it's not like like you said it's not like you're raising them like <laughs> 
like American bullfrogs in, in, in septic tanks out somewhere with no water quality and chytrid and ranavirus everywhere. It's, it's not exactly. like you're doing it's, that. It's like, how am I investing thousands of dollars into just building a system for these frogs and their well-being isn't in my interest? You know, it's, 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 it's not true. This, the frogs that I produce, um, you know, I don't produce them actually as, as a business. I, uh, I have pet frogs and they're happy and they reproduce and I, they produce offspring that I enjoy raising. And basically I do have, have a website and I've, before that I even, uh, you know, just through Facebook groups and all that, I, you have to find a, a home for these. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's not like I'm pumping out these frogs to, to make a, a living. I, uh, I have a very fun, fulfilling living in commercial ornamental marine aquaculture um and and the frogs are a hobby um and uh you know i I just try to do the best i can um like i said i haven't been in the frog hobby for a while i've only been in for three three four years um and but i love it and i'm continuing to learn and uh and try to see what i can bring to the hobby and, and share with other hobbyists well it's a very unique approach and i mean again going from the 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 marine aquarium world I mean, obviously, you're going to have a greater understanding of water quality than I, than I do. And I mean, I know people have different opinions. People say water quality this, water quality that. It, it's, you know, the health of the parents is better. I mean, there's there's so many different ways to do this that I felt like if there was only one way to do this, one person would be doing it and that one person would be doing it successfully and everybody else would be failing. And everybody else isn't failing. You know, there's, there's room to experiment and to try different methods. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and this is an, another thing I'm, I'm curious about. I'd like to get your your opinion as a as a you know as a reef keeper. You do keep some species uh, communally. You do you do keep some. I should say. I'm sorry. I should say um, community. Tax. Co-have. Yeah. Exactly. Co-have. co-have. Yeah. I I mean I have my opinions about it, but you know I like to stay neutral on the show, but. Why don't you tell us about your experiences with that? I mean, what kind of background information did you get first, and how did you figure out like whether or not the dynamic would, would work, and how how did that whole thing evolve? Okay, so uh, it's it basically started with uh, you know when I first got in the hobby, you know, you, I would ask, you know, can you you mix frogs if you want to in, enjoy more, and, and people would say, you know, no. Well, what are the reasons for it? And it's just a couple of them. Uh, one, you don't want any hybridization, which, you know, I because uh, you got plenty of locales, no need to muddy the, the genes and all that. Absolutely, that that makes sense. And um, then there's also uh, you don't want any aggression taking place. And uh, yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, but uh, like we just said, you you know, kind of experiment with things and and try and 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 see what works. So I have actually been able to cohabitate um, many different pairings of frogs. Uh, it's always frogs from two different genera. For example, a Dendrobates and a Ranitamaya, or uh, uh, the Phylobates and, and the Epidobates. Um, so that eliminates the first potential issue of hybridization. Um, and then also you don't want any aggression. Um, so that, you know, a lot of people say that's hard to see in frogs. Um, you know, it may be subtle aggression that you're not really noticing. 
Um, and even despite your best efforts, you, you may not notice anything, um, which is true. Um, but in my experience, uh, the large majority of these frogs that I've had together for most of them for at least three years now, um, with both parties involved regularly breeding, um, if they're breeding regularly, um, then I, I don't think there's, there's too much aggression going on or anything like that. I'm not going to say that they have all worked out. There has been one pairing that didn't. I had um, a Ranitomia sirensis orange paired with Dendrobates leucomelis fine spot. And every time the Luke would call, the male Ranitomia would would straddle and be, <laughs> try to wrestle this Luke that was like four times its size. And it was, it was kind of hilarious. But all I had to do was just separate them. I tried something. It didn't work. You, you know, you separate them. But uh, besides that one pairing, everything else has worked fine. I have um, uh, Tinctoris Tumex paired with Ranamia Reticulata. I have Dendrobates Tinctoris Vanessa with Vanzellini. I have Veradero imitators with Giant Orange. I have uh, Ranamia Amazonica with uh, Tinctoris Robertus. I have Ophaga um, Histrionica Redhead with uh, Highland Serensis. I have I, I could go on and on. I have Benedicto with Green Sips. I have Bacchus with Banded Imitators. I have Powder Blue with Green Imitators. I have Penablanca with uh, Terrapato. I have um, Chizuda imitators with Patricia. Virtually, virtually all my tanks are cohabitated uh, between a, lar a large frog and a smaller frog. Um, and they have been so for about three years now. And nearly all the frogs, I would say at least 25 out of the 30 or so different ones are, are breed regularly for me. Um, it works for me. It may not work for everybody. I wouldn't recommend anybody try it if you don't have the resources to immediately separate it and, and house them separately if need be. But uh, for me, it, it allows the um, me to enjoy more frog species. And uh, people may, you know, may say, well, you know, you, what are you, are you doing that for the frogs or for you? It's like, well, me keeping even just a single species of frog, it's... it's it's for my enjoyment. I don't want to harm the frog, but it, it's not like I'm 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 yeah, I, I'm not doing it for me to begin with. That's why anybody keeping animals in captivity, even if it's a bird, a fish tank, anything, it's all for our enjoyment. Now, of course, I don't want to bring any harm to the frogs. Um, I know it's a taboo subject, so I'm not gonna you know try to stoke any cores. But for me, it works. Um, and uh, it's not a, a one-off. I literally I have a couple dozen combinations and they've been that way for years. Um, and it, it works for me. Um, so, uh, I tend not to on, on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, I have plenty of pictures that I can share of, you know, a Veradero imitator sitting on the back of a giant orange or a reticulated Fantastica sitting on a, you know, sitting next to the food bowl with Azuris. Um, or, you know, even Santa Isabel's with my Blackfoot Terabilis, um, 
they uh they they do fine and uh i have you know what is i think 13 blackfoot terribilis in there with several dozen possibly over 100 actually san isabel and uh they do find that the, they they actually both have completed life cycles in the tank uh uninterrupted by me there's a little pond in the front corner of that vivarium that's my biggest vivarium it's a it's a custom made one um but if these animals are regularly year in year out reproducing and creating tons of tadpoles i uh and they're not hybridizing um i think it's it's acceptable to me yeah like i said everyone has different approaches to husbandry and whatnot and i mean you the the most important thing that you raised was that uh obviously you have to have some sort of a backup meaning if you have um I mean, not even necessarily multiple different species but multiple individuals that dynamic can change and you might need a free vivarium to to move them into like um i i had um not a not a sexed pair but i have two phyllobates um bicolor Yoraba, which are completely i mean i've talked about my phyllobates bicolors o- over the past you know couple of years into the podcast and i have two that are that are very very different from these but the Yorabas i had separated for a long time they were really they you know they're 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 nuts they're like crazy like hoppy all over the place frogs and uh, i just moved the two of them together into a tank and it's funny because they both actually put on more weight than they were individually so I don't know if the little bit of added competition is making them eat more or what, but I, I, I figured, all right, well, if I have to separate them, at least I still have the other tank empty. And I, I let them sit for a couple of weeks before I actually broke down the other tank, but I still have a, you know, I still have an overflow in case. But, I mean, you're right. You do want to make sure that you have some kind of extra tank or something available in case that it, it doesn't work out. Yeah, you, that's that's... Actually, you know, the only way the hobby of any hobby can advance is by by trying different things. But you gotta admit, if something's not working, don't you know? Don't you know? Make it too much of your ego that you, you can't say that you're wrong in trying something. Um, and, and you know, try to create uh the the best environment for them. Um, all of my tanks are ex- extremely heavily hardscaped and landscaped with. Uh, plants and driftwood and cork and all that. Um, so there's tons of, of available room for the frogs. Um, and you know, try it. And if it if it uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it does, it does. In fact, I've had to separate more frogs of the same locale, whether it be you know, two male tinks finally deciding that they're done with being a trio. Um, you know, I've had to separate more of those than I have of. Like I said, I've I'm not too proud to admit that one mixing that uh orange sirensis and fine spot Luke it it didn't work. That little uh that little randomia uh sirensis had too big of an ego for himself when he heard that that Luke calling. Um and it didn't work. So you know I'm not going to say that it, it it doesn't sometimes, but that's one out of I should have counted. Is is maybe different eighteen different pairings I have. Um. Yeah, that's not, I've heard of that happening too. I had another guest back on a while back and he was telling me that, and this was, I think off air, but he had, um, I don't remember which species around it was, but it was, it was in with an Azurius and whenever he would feed it, this, this tiny little thumbnail 
would hop on the back of this Azurius and like ride it like all. I mean, he had obviously had to separate him after that, but it would just ride this frog all over the the terrarium and just drive him yep. nuts. But it's, that's 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 what happened. That's what what happened. Yeah, that's, that's funny that you said that. Um, and you know, I was kind of a, a little bit hesitant to to mention that I, I cohab uh, on here because there's, there's a lot of people that will just instantly you know bash it. Um, but uh, it, it's it's something that you know, hey, it's it's working for me. It, I have a you know, an open public Facebook profile. Uh, I'm new to Instagram, but you can go back uh, years on my Facebook profile and watch these these different vivariums and frogs and habitats grow. And it's working for me. How can you you hate on it if if you know year in year out these these frogs are thriving for me and doing well? Like, how is that that necessarily wrong? I mean, is it any more wrong than just keeping them by themselves? I, in my opinion. No, I mean, I don't know. The funny thing is, uh, I've had we're we're over a hundred episodes now, and I've had guests from all all different walks of life and preferences in the the dart frog hobby, I should say, because this the scientific stuff is is a little bit different. But if I mean, I'll tell you, man, every time I have someone on the show, everyone has a different approach to to keeping whether it's vitamin supplementation, whether it's plant choices, whether it's a drainage material. And I mean, like you said, we, we are still keeping the things in, in boxes. We are, you know what I mean? This really, exactly. I mean, as much as we say that it's natural, we're still keeping an animal in captivity in a glass box. We, we are, you know, we have to be honest with that. But I, I'll tell you, like it, there's, there's, a, there's so many different ways to do this and people have their own preferences. Like, you know, I, I have mine, but you know what? It, it, there's nothing wrong with keeping an open mind and trying different things. And if they, if they work and it's consistent with, you know, the animals being healthy and whatnot, you know, again, like who, who am I to criticize? You know what I mean? Like I said, I, I have my opinions, my quirks, my things, but you know, I've heard people say, Oh, you know, this guy shouldn't be using moss and this guy shouldn't be doing too much with vitamin A and this guy shouldn't be keeping, you know, uh, frogs in like low tanks. He should be keeping them in high tanks or, you know, she should be doing this. There's, there's so many different opinions. And, um, I know the, the cohab thing I know is a little bit controversial and it probably always will be, but you know, look, if I only picked, if I only came on this show and said, all right, this is the only way to keep, you know, what's the point in having a show? You know what I mean? So I like to hear other people's perspectives and other, you know, other people's opinions. And sometimes I've heard stuff where people, you know, say like in public, like, oh, that's crazy. But then in private, they're like, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I've been doing this too. So, you know, I, I <laughs> yep. try, I try to keep an, I try to keep an open mind, you know? And that's how you're going to reach the furthest is, is keeping, keeping an open mind and, and always try to learn more. And that's what I think is great about your podcast here, Dan is, is, uh, you know, I love the, uh, the scientific, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, researchers that you have on here, but also a lot of the other hobbyists, things that you, you, you pick up and, and ways they go about doing things. And uh, it just, it's, it just, if you keep an open mind, you're going to do nothing but improve. It, it doesn't, you don't have to in, enact what you hear, but hear what other people are doing. See, see you know, see what, what their results are and just try to improve yourself. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's what it's about is, you know, it, it, the, any hobby with keeping animals in captivity um, is, you know, from the start, it's, it is somewhat selfish you know i don't keep any wild frogs um 
because I, I would hate the thought of keeping something that was born free uh, in captivity. Um, I do see the the reason imports are needed to begin breeding programs and, and stuff, uh, get different things into the hobby. But, um, it, you know, it, it is something that, that we're doing uh, to bringing us closer to the natural environment and enjoy things in our house. And, uh, and it's, it's artificial to begin with, keeping these things in the boxes. Uh, but you want to you want to create a comfortable environment for them and uh, and see what uh, see what you can create with it and, and that's what I love. Yeah, and to I mean to to do this effectively, I mean again it's it's for for those of us who are I mean even even for for I, I hate to, I hate to use the word beginner because beginner automatically implies that the person knows nothing. You know, I mean it can have a negative connotation, but I mean even beginners who are, have a good understanding of, of where the process is going to go. This isn't tremendously difficult, but we're kind of a unique group, I guess, because a lot of other people think that it is very difficult. I mean, to you, keeping marine aquariums is like, you know, it's it's comfortable to you. To me, it's intimidating because I just don't know anything about it. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. to hear the way that we talk about the dog frog world, it's, it's still, it's a cerebral hobby. It is. It's an expensive hobby. You can't succeed at it you know i mean you you can you can fail anyway but uh you, you can't succeed it without investing some time and and um you know getting some background information and whatnot but um it it just seems counterintuitive to 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 criticize anyone who comes on the show because that just because that person has a different way of keeping because there's there's a lot of people out there you know kind of closeted about the way they keep things and whatnot and you know, people are afraid of criticism, and I understand that. But you know, in, in in this type of forum, this this podcast medium that I use, you know, it's it's not a debate. You know what I mean? We're just two people talking, and you know, I guarantee you, people are going to message me and like, hey, you know, I'm curious about this and curious about that, and I say, look, you know, that's that's fine. We're here to ask questions, and we're not going to get anywhere in the progression of this if we don't look at things from different perspectives. And and you know, it's just you can't look. We never would have gotten anywhere as a species if we didn't think about better or more effective ways to do things, you know? Exactly. You shouldn't have to feel bad about doing something in a more effective way as long as it's not, you know, like like horribly wrong. Like, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't keep them like in toilets or <laughs> or something yeah, like that. You don't want to cause obvious yeah. distress to the animals or or, you know, anything like that. But uh it, it is it's it's you know, just do your best, learn from others, have an open mind. And, and the only way we are going to improve is to, to try different things um, as whether that be the, the way in which we keep them or, or different methods of, of, you know, feeding, nutrition, supplementation, um, which I think is, is an uh, a area that can be improved upon a lot with dart frogs is, is supplementation, feeding, nutrition, that whole aspect of it. But I'm nowhere, uh, that's something I need to grow in that I can be, uh, improved upon is, uh, which I, a lot of you guests you've had on talk about different, you know, carotenoids and, and things like that, that, uh, uh you know, we, we've got to improve. Like, uh, I know you've been in the reptile hobby a lot longer than I have, and you frequently met, uh, speak about on these different podcasts of how things how far things have come and uh they're they're not done yet we have we have more room to go and i'm anxious to see how how things are in the coming years yeah there's there's always a new place to go and i just um 
you know, I have conversations with people who haven't kept animals or haven't, I mean, I've been, I've been doing this a long time in different ways, different shapes or forms, you know, but a lot of people don't appreciate what we have today because they don't understand what it was like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a 43, 2000, 2001, 2002. That was like yesterday. It's like nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I don't think a lot of people really appreciate all the labor that went from the first imports into Europe or the USA in like the, the 70s and 80s and how the care got refined and progressed and nutritional supplements and all this stuff to get us where we are now. It was a long process and people made mistakes along the way. There were dead ends. There were, there were ways that went well. There were convergent paths that led to success. So, you know, it's just, um, just, just try and take in as much information as you can. There really shouldn't be any shame in that, but, um, I do want to ask you one question before we're kind of winding down towards the end, but aquarium lights versus vivarium lights. Give me a, give me a comparison because I actually use aquarium lights on a couple of my tanks and I get really good plant growth with them. What are your thoughts on lighting an aquarium versus lighting a vivarium? Uh, you got a lot more choices when it comes to aquarium lighting. I actually use uh, on my large vivariums, uh, it's three feet deep, and uh, I use uh, I use bright aquarium uh, LEDs with you know 120 degree optic lenses to really focus that light down deep into the aquarium, uh, into the vivarium. Um, the the main thing is going to be color temperature. Um, a lot of uh, reef aquarium lights uh, can be, or aquarium lights in general, besides freshwater planted tanks uh, lights, can be quite blue. I mean, you're not talking about 6,500K or anything. You're talking about 20K. Um, so besides color spectrum, um, uh, make sure you get, get a light with the right color spectrum. But aquarium lights, you, you get a lot more variety and, and a lot more intensity and programmability. Um, as far as the technical side of vivarium keeping in general is just now starting to scratch the surface and, uh, Bill at NC2 ecosystems, which, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, a paid advertiser. I've, I've never even talked to the guy and I don't have any NC2 ecosystem vivariums myself. So this isn't any paid, you know, advertisement or anything, but that type of thought going in to keeping frogs is the everyday care and thought that's going into reef keeping. And I feel like we're just now getting there with vivarium keeping. I'm also, you had uh, the VivTech uh, uh, ultraviolet light. Um, I, I forget the gentleman's name, but uh, the it was Ryan. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan. Ryan McVeigh. Again, never met the guy, never talked to him, but it's that type of advancement that is really going to bring this hobby forward. Um, so the, the aquarium lights, you know, have are a lot more established, especially with, with high tech planted tanks or, or reef aquariums than what we currently have in, um, available for frogs. There are some out there. Um, I know spectral designs, uh, he, he has a lot of a strong following. I, again, I haven't, uh, used any of his lights but that's the direction that i feel like it's going even ramp timers you know slowly increasing um uh intensity and then uh decreasing it at night 
maybe even have an all-in-one fixtures where you could have a, a, some UV LEDs in there that, you know, come on for a couple hours during peak day. And that's all in one single unit. You know, that's in the future. I can see, I can see it's, uh, it's, that's an area of growth that we can, we can improve upon. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, that's another thing that the products that are about out there now, like, like Bill's terrariums are designed with frogs in mind. There, there's, I mean, Bill is an engineer. I, I've had Bill on the show before and we talked about how he was an engineer and how a lot of that helped him translate into, you know, creating a, um, a vivarium that was designed for, for drainage. I mean, that's also a big part of his tanks is they're designed to have a missing system come on, mist, soak, and then drain all that water away. Ex- exactly. Yeah. That's about this, what I've been trying to uh, uh, emphasize about these closed boxes and how his vivariums allow you to export nutrients out by f- easily flushing them um and, and getting all that water drained out um in a more simplified way you know i do it with you know drilling takes myself an egg crate and, and still i don't you know he's gone beyond that by having just a, a shallow trough of water right? so it gets more completely flushed and all that but uh it's that that really in-depth analysis of recreating the habitats in these tiny, tiny glass boxes and uh it's like I said, I'm anxious to see what the years ahead uh, bring us as far as advancements specific to dart frog keeping. Um, Cause it's, 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 it can always be room for improvement. Always room for improvement. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kyle, I want to just give you a chance to, um, if anyone, any listeners wants to find out more, they want to follow you on, on Facebook or check you out on Instagram or um, I don't know how you're selling frogs or whatnot, but if they wanted to find you or more information, how would they go about doing that? Oh, thanks for the opportunity. So uh, anybody, uh, I've been on Facebook, you know, since I was in college. So I'm Kyle Martin on Facebook. Uh, I have a, a picture of my wife as my profile picture. Me and my wife is a profile picture up there currently. Our honeymoon uh in Hawaii. Um, but I have a public profile. So if you just want to snoop around and see what we've been talking about here, you can try to find me on Facebook. Also on Instagram, which I, I recently started, I'm at NC Dart Frogs. And then also I just launched a, a, a website. Like I said, I've been selling frogs for a while now. Uh, it's not a for service business like you may have at a at, at, uh, you know, Alex at Frog Daddy, you're not going to find fruit flies or dry goods or anything like that on my website. It's just tadpoles and frogs. But uh, if, if you'd like to see what I have available, it's ncdartfrogs.com. Very cool. And I'll make sure that there's links in the description as well. Awesome. And actually, uh, you know, since you you mentioned that uh, you you love phylobates, you have your bicolors there. Um I will, on my website, go ahead and put active uh, for, I'll say, the rest of the year, since I'm not sure when this episode will launch. You use the code PODCAST, and I'll give you 10% off any uh, Phylobates that I have on my website. That sounds good to me. (laughs) It's a good deal. So check it out, everyone. You know, try to, like I said, spread the joy, spread the hobby, enjoy these wonderful little jewels that we, we keep in our homes. Very cool. Very cool. 
All right, everyone. I want to thank Kyle for taking the time to talk to us. It's it's always great getting someone's a fresh perspective, and I, you know, getting someone who's into marine and reef aquariums. I was very very interesting, and um, like look, like I said, you can pull information from you know anywhere, and as long as it's useful and it works out, um, you know, definitely way to go. I've always had a lot of respect for reef keepers, the amount of time and work and effort that it goes into that. And uh, it's been great having Kyle on. I hope you guys picked up some uh, some interesting tips. And, uh, you know, that's basically it. Like I said, keep an open mind and try different things. And, um, you know, a lot of cool stuff we got to cover. So other than that, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope to catch up with you guys again soon. Uh, hope you're enjoying the new stuff. Again, full speed ahead. I've got some good stuff coming up in the future. So other than that, talk to you guys again soon. <laughs>